Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is the second part to episode 6, which was all about advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And this is a supplement, or more accurately, a module, which focuses on the player's handbook, the core rules to advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Luckily, I have Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, on hand in the role-playing room of rambling to look at these rules in a bit more detail. What is it that makes the early editions of D&D tick, and if you will, talk? In this part, Judge Blythe will be donning his judicial wig and poking at the finer parts of the rules in the player's handbook. Daily Dwarf from Twitter has had the unenviable task of selecting three personal favourite AD&D scenarios from White Dwarf from the many that were published during the heyday of the magazine. I've also allowed Blythe to exchange his wig for a floppy, conical hat with a wide brim to talk about magic in the Games Master screen. We'll be having a spell-off. Not a spelling bee, I won't be asking him how to spell parastelsis, instead we'll be having a battle to the death using D&D spells. At the end of the podcast, there's a catch-up on the other Grognard Files projects that we have on the go. I'll also have a quick look at the post bag. At the first part of the episode, it's attracted a lot of comment from listeners, which has been great. Some have taken to iTunes to express their opinions, like this one from The Angry Monk in Canada. This is a wonderful, thoughtful podcast. No attempts at goofy humour or foul-mouthed jokes, just honest-to-goodness analysis of games from a bygone era. Dirk and Judge Blythe talk about games that I only wish to have as a younger person. I love the comfortable sound of the podcast. It makes me want to settle by the fireplace with a cup of tea and a scone. Ah, the Grognard Files is of course best listened to with a brew and a fresh packet of hobnog. Thanks for the review, Mr Angry Monk. I hope you've calmed down a bit. We love getting reviews on iTunes, or anywhere, because it reminds us that there's a point to doing all this. OK, so, the story so far. In the early days of our club, the Armchair Adventurers, we were playing RuneQuest and Traveller on rotation, until our messianic friend Simon got hold of the Dungeon Master's Guide. We tried to play D&D with it for months and months in a strange, obscure scenarios that avoided dungeons, and dragons were vegetarians. Thanks to finding a loophole in the Prime Directive, a law that meant only one member of the club could own a game, Blythe started to run the Red Box Basic Dungeons & Dragons by claiming that it was a different game altogether and we played during lunch times at school for a year. 
in 1988, we were put into a deep freeze for nearly 15 years, when we were temporarily defrosted by a psychopathic power gamer, Kevin, and we played D&D exclusively for a couple of years. Most of our experiences with D&D are based on this intense period. Recently, over the past few weeks, we've been discovering the 5th edition, and in the next part of the episode, we'll have a look at the latest incarnation of the world's first and most recognisable RPG. There's a lot to cover, so, as Simon used to say as we dawdled into town on a Saturday, we have many errands today, brisk pace, gentlemen, please, brisk pace. Ramblers, let's get rambling. The White Dwarf, part one. Dungeons and Dragons, the White Dwarf scenarios. During its heyday, White Dwarf published many and varied scenarios for Dungeons and Dragons, once again presenting me with a bit of a headache on what choices to make. The first couple of features recognisable as scenarios were a little unusual. Alice in Dungeonland, issue 4, and Lair of the Demon Queen, issue 7, were both excerpts from Don Turnbull's Greenland's Mega Dungeon, and really didn't stand by themselves as complete adventures. Soon after, though, White Dwarf started regularly publishing scenarios that were in great settings and engaging plots and characters and fearsome monsters. This continued until the AD&D Swan Song, Getting Away From Most Of It, by James Wallace in issue 93. The issue, of course, that introduced Warhammer 40,000 to the world. The king is dead. Long live the king. Choices, choices, choices. What to pick? On another day, I might have come up with a different selections. In the end, as with the articles last time, I've decided to look at a few of the adventures that I remember the most fondly. But before I start rambling in earnest, here's a few honourable mentions. The Lich Way by Albi Fiore, Issue 9. The first proper dungeon to appear in White Dwarf, small but perfectly formed, with a great backstory. As we'll see, though, Albi Fiore had more adventures up his sleeve. The Eagle Hunt by Marcus L. Rowland, Issue 40. A hunt for stolen treasure in an assassin's guild, with added time travel if the DM's feeling brave. This features an emphasis on investigation over combat. A foretaste of the adventures to come from Marcus Rowland in Cthulhu, perhaps? The City in the Swamp by Graham Davis, issue 37. I remember this one being quite deadly, with the swamp making for an unusual and atmospheric setting, away from the usual green rolling hills of medieval high fantasy, which presents some issues for the players. You're planning on wearing chainmail in a swamp? Seriously? Castle in the Wind by Venetia Lee and Paul Stamforth, 
issue 76. As White Dwarf was about to head down the road of grimy dark fantasy with Warhammer, this was a breath of fresh air. High adventure and a floating castle with princes, princesses, genies, very Arabian nights. Terror at Trollmarsh by Janet and Peter Vials. Issue 74. Murder most foul in a crumbling manor house for the players to investigate. So, onwards. I finished the last part on White Dwarf articles with controversy surrounding Lou Pulsifer article. So, let's start this episode with a controversial Lou Pulsifer scenario. White Dwarf 38 featured Kazadum, a scenario based on the Fellowship's trek through Moria from The Lord of the Rings. Now, Lou is very clear in explaining his intentions. This is a scenario designed to introduce new players to AD&D, rather than an attempt to accurately reproduce the famous episode from Tolkien's hefty doorstop. In this regard, I think Lou succeeds admirably. Harking back to the dungeon architect I covered last episode, this is a dungeon with a story that the characters have a personal stake in. It's not your standard dungeon crawl. The players have a clear, obvious goal, make it out alive and continue on the quest to defeat Sauron. Moria has been chosen to make the setup more familiar to players. Anyone with a passing knowledge of the book knows what to expect. A perilous journey through long-abandoned mines and a confrontation with a dirty big Balrog at the end. Lou simplifies some of the mechanics of AD&D for the scenario. Magic is very much played down compared with a normal game of AD&D, with Gandalf modelled more as a cleric than a magic user. More on that in a bit. I have to say, though, as a gentle introduction to AD&D, it isn't very, well, gentle... This is a tough scenario. Depending on the route taken, the party may have to deal with waits, trolls, ogres, ghouls and werewolves well before they take on the Balrog. All this with a party containing four second-levelled halflings. Did I say tough? Make that very tough. I ran this scenario a few times back in the day, to interest new players in AD&D. The first time, the party were half dead by the time they got to the encounter at the bridge and didn't last very long after, when the Balrog was through with them. That sound? Sauron chuckling away on his throne back in Mordor. On subsequent occasions, I toned down the monsters in initial locations after all, the big climax for the Fellowship is to square up with the Balrog, so I wanted the players to make it there in reasonably good shape. It's a great set piece from the book, 
and it plays out really well in a game of AD&D. It was fun seeing the realisation dawn in the eyes of the players that they were playing a scene from the book. But because it's a game, and because the dice could go against them just at the wrong moment, this could all have a very different outcome from the story. All in all, it's a great idea for an introductory scenario from Lou Pulsifer, and very well realised. It didn't go down well with some of White Dwarf's readership, though. Letters soon appeared, complaining of Gandalf's portrayal as a cleric, and accusing Lou Pulsifer of the butchery of Tolkien. I leave it to you, gentle listener, to decide whether that's a good thing or not. But anyway, talk about missing the point. Moria isn't an end in itself. Rather, Lou uses it here as a means to an end, a springboard to help new players to see how AD&D works via a backdrop of a familiar setting. Indeed, with Peter Jackson's films now part of the cultural landscape, the world and his wife know the story of Khazad-dum. And it remains a great scenario for introducing players to the delights of AD&D. Judge Blythe, rules! OK, welcome to the ancient tabernacle of Judge Blythe. We've got the player's handbook under scrutiny today. And uh, if you're playing along at home, Judge Blythe has got the first edition and I have the second edition. So Judge Blythe is our resident rules lawyer and he applies his maxed out whiz on the game in question. And we discuss the game in general and then go really deep into particular rules. Just blithely, we'll select three features of the game he thinks are worthy of chatterage, uh, and then at the end of it, he'll say one thing that doesn't work very well, and then towards the end, I'll antagonise him a little bit. Okay, that's how it works, isn't it, Blythe? It is, yes. Before we get on to that, I think we need to talk about the response we got from the Dungeon Master's Guide, because it's been remarkably cool, hasn't it? Even some of our... You know, more notable listeners who normally respond to everything. You know, they they were quite happy with us dissing Traveller, uh, talking about RuneQuest, talking about yes. Stormbringer, yeah. Call yeah, of Cthulhu. Yeah. But the reaction has been a bit different, hasn't it, from mm. uh, Dungeons yes. and Dragons? Yes, it's uh, it is. It's, it's as if it's it is more sacred, I think, for people. It, it does seem to upset people when we have a not have a go at D and D, but just fair criticism. Yeah, you know, seems to upset people more. Odd. But the analogy I'd use is a bit like um, you know when um, I yeah, I might criticise my sister, and mm. you know I say, yeah. but if you join in criticising my sister, that'd yes. be awkward, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same thing, isn't it? So yeah. what we've effectively done is criticise people's sisters. Yeah, well, in a sense, yeah. But I also think someone uh, made a very good point on Twitter. Um, where they said that you know they loved first edition D and D more than any other role playing game, and they listed some of the things they loved about it, and a couple of those things were it's one of them was its naivety, and one of them was I think its kind of clunkiness or something like that. So it's a bit like people love it because it's often the first role playing game they ever encountered. Yeah. Um, in many ways, it is the it is the first role playing game that yeah. was you know. Um, 
And so people have this kind of fondness and affection, and they're aware of those faults. I think people are aware of those faults, and they're yeah. aware of the faults that we pick out, and they may be aware of many of the faults we may pick out today, but they still love it. Yeah, They still love it because it's it's the first role-playing game they Cause, encountered. Because it's like the sister, isn't it? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the sister. <laughs> I'll be an ugly sister. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what I think as well is that people have formed a view on it because... Most people will have come into contact with uh, D and D. Yes. Whereas other yes. things like Stormbringer, they may not have played. Yes. Um, so that, that might account for it. I want to give a particular mention to uh, the Save or Die po- podcast. Oh yes. First of all, we need to thank them because mm. because they gave us a mention. They've uh, drawn to us in their legions yes. uh, more people because on the Save or Die podcast they look at old stuff in detail and uh, debate and talk about it. I don't think that'll catch on myself. I don't think there's any legs in talking about old role-playing games. I don't know. No, I can't see any future in that. No. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they put that in an entertaining way, look at, look at the old stuff, and they've given us a mention. Mm. And in particular, you, Judge Blythey. Uh, yes. They've taken it against. They took against me, haven't they? Yeah. yeah, they did. Okay, they, they didn't like my view of Dungeon Master's Guide at all. Yeah, uh, they yeah. didn't really say why, but they said I was I was wrong, and ju- ju- I, I felt slightly threatened in a in a in a Texan accent. Yeah, well, in a Texan accent, it sounded um, like a bit it was like in a Western. Yeah, or, or a John Grisham novel. Yes, Judge Blythe. Judge Blythe is wrong. Judge Blythe is wrong. Yes, I'm uh, not wrong, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm right. What, what I found interesting in the whole debate around the. Uh, the first part that we've done is some of the opinions that I had have been attributed to you. Um, so yes, I, yeah. I have been wearing yeah. <laughs> the fall guy for your unpalatable opinion. <laughs> I think I'm wearing a ring of protection uh, <laughs> because I have to say that uh, in our group, you're probably the most friendly towards D and D. Yeah, and and I I have an affection for it probably more than uh, and a liking for it more than. Any of the, any of us really. Uh, yeah. Like you said, my, my uh, the save or die criticism was that it, perhaps that I kind of said the Dungeon Master's Guide was like a rambling mad book, mm-hmm. um, and, and I still think it is. But it doesn't mean I don't like D and D. And yeah. again, today we, we will find it's hard not to find fault with first edition D and D because, and I think I said this last time. It's the beginnings of role playing, so it will have faults in it, won't it? Later games, later editions of D and D have refined the game and made it better. So it's inevitable that there's going to be faults, yeah. but it doesn't mean doesn't mean we don't like it, and it doesn't yeah. mean we've not had fun playing it because no. we have. Uh, yeah. Well, well, we'll mm. go on to that. But I, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I have to say, and am I allowed to blow smoke up your fundament at this point? Yeah, I'm always willing to let you do that because uh, you know we're men of the north mm. uh, men of the north don't normally exchange uh, compliments, compliments. No. no we don't but I have to say that of all the games that you run um, the D&D games that you run are the best you're the best at running these games and I think it's because it suits you because of the precision and detail mm. yeah yeah. Um, yeah. and I enjoy, I've always enjoyed running D&D as well that's, that's you know, yeah. it's interesting you should say it because I've always enjoyed running it. I find it, I find it an easy game to run. Uh, and back in the day, I found it when we started playing D and D. Obviously, the Prime Directive prevented that for a while. But I, I found it quite refreshing compared to Traveller because I ran Traveller for a long time. Yeah. And um, 
D&D was, was e- just felt easier. It just did yeah. feel easier as a game. And also you were looking for uh, D&D surrogates, so for a time you ran Dragon Quest, you ran... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. because of, of Prime Directive, that's right. And then when I finally got hold of D&D <laughs> and was allowed to run it, because of our weird rule, um, it, it was, it was like a breath of fresh air. So, yeah, we have a lot of affection for it. I have a lot of affection for D&D. Yeah, you, you love it. And I think uh, you were in search of a friend, because I was a friend, I had a friend in RuneQuest. Um, and you know, yes. and I yeah, think you yeah. came in, yeah. came into your own way and did it. So I, th- I do think the precision and detail and that sense that um, the bad guys are playing by the same rules is something that's very important to yes. you yeah. when you yeah. when you do it, and it kind of details that. And the second reason is that every other dungeon master has been completely bobbins. Mm. Yes, that's a bit of a backhanded compliment. It now, is, yeah. It? So all the other, I'm a great dungeon master, but all the others have been rubbish. Yeah. I think I think another and, and I'm gonna you'll have to stop me doing this because I don't want to refer to other games throughout yeah, yeah. this, but it's difficult not to. I think one of the reasons I liked D and D and liked running it was because it's almost it sits almost opposite to Traveller, and I don't mean because it's fantasy and Traveller science fiction, but in Traveller, as we've discussed before, it always descended into madness. It always descended into people shooting people all over the place, and there was no sense of what your character was or how they would behave. And D&D is very, very different. It's the opposite of that. It, it, it kind of puts you in a bracket with character class, with alignment, for example, as we discussed last time. Puts you in a, So it was very different from Traveller. And so it was a kind of relief to be running a game that was very different from Traveller in the way it operated. You know? yeah. And I think that's why I enjoyed it as well. Well, let's um, look in a bit more detail. What are your top three picks now i have to say to the listening public that i've actually cast a hold person on um blithy at this point <laughs> because he's desperate to talk about magic oh yes and we've got a later uh, section that's going to look in magic in a bit mm. more detail so yeah. you've got that on you so you've got to tell me what are your top three picks no magic. no madness apart from magic yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> well again it, it's quite difficult with dnd because from a mechanics point of view, the mechanics are fairly um, crude, aren't they? But again, it, it's the first role-playing game. So yeah. when I've talked about mechanics and rules on the other games, you know, the other games have like novel ideas. So for example, in RuneQuest, you had Strike Rank, um, but that sits relative to D&D. So in D&D, you're rolling a dice for initiative. RuneQuest has Strike Rank. So you like that rule because it's different from D&D. So it's almost like everything references to D&D. It yeah. makes it difficult to pick actual detailed mechanics. So what I've gone for are kind of slightly broader concepts Okay. this time. I'll allow you to do that. Thank you, you very are, much. It's very kind judge. of you. Yeah. yeah. Well. Um, good job you do because if you don't, I'm nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I think the three things I would pick are character classes, levels, yeah. and... He's a bit left field. Weapon proficiency. Weapon proficiency. We'll come on to that. Weapon proficiency. Well, let's start with character classes then. What is it about character classes in D&D? Well, I always wonder what would role-playing games look like if D&D hadn't had character classes. If D&D had let you play a person with a range of skills and no character classes. What would role-playing games look like? Because when you look at role-playing games, there are role-playing games that have some sense of character class and other role-playing games that don't. Yeah. But what I think is interesting 
is that when you look at role-playing games that don't ostensibly have character classes, what you find is they've built in things like professions or backgrounds that give you certain pluses and minuses on various skills. So there's always this sense of it's important to have some kind of bracket to put your character into. And what character classes do, what's great about D&D is people will quite rightly criticise 1st edition D&D and 2nd edition D&D character classes because on the one hand, let's get the criticism out of the way before I get on to why I've picked it. On the one hand, there's a silliness to it. You're a magic user, you can't use anything other than a dagger, a sling or a, st a staff. Right? And why not? Well, because it says here you can't. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's always that sense of it's a bit bit daft you know as a thief you can't use this you can't use that you know and I suppose the reason for that is this thing about game balance that D&D is kind of obsessed with so there is that silliness to character classes but the really exciting bit about character classes is that you can be that guy out of the film or the book if you want to be Conan or Aragorn you can be a fighter or a ranger and you can be really tough and take on a horde of orcs and beat them just like in the movies just like in the books if you want to be a powerful wizard who can cast lightning bolts from his fingers you can be that in D&D &D. you can be that guy if you want to be a thief that can slip into the shadows and slit someone's throat you can be you can be that guy in D&D be that guy if you want to be a guy who doesn't use edge weapons you can turn the undead. Oh, hang on a minute. No, nobody <laughs> wants to be that guy, do they? With the exception of cleric, you know. You can be those big, colourful figures from fantasy fiction and fantasy movies. And that's the great thing about character classes. It allows you to do that. All right, it might be a bit of a cliche. They might be a little bit straight-jackety in what they allow you to do. But the, great, the best thing about D&D, &D, or one of the best things, is that ability to be that larger-than-life fantasy character that it allows you to it allows you to do that. You want to be a paladin. You want to be a knight in shining armour who, at kind of high levels, could take on a dragon single-handedly. You can be that guy, and that's what's great about character classes. Yeah, I think what character classes do as well is define D&D uh, &D as a setting because it mm. yeah. kind of fits anywhere, doesn't yeah. it, in any fantasy setting? But it kind of gives you some archetypes to work with, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, look at the cover on the front of your edition. Mm. Yeah, to yeah, me, that yeah. is a, it's a great cover. I mean, it's crudely painted in a lot of ways, but it's a great cover because it kind of defines yes. the game that you're playing. Yeah. Whereas some of these are very... Uh, some of the illustrations that you see, uh, particularly in the second edition, are like portentous, mm. um, you know, single figures taking on a horde of uh, dragons. Well, that, that's not D&D, is it? D&D is everyone playing... A role yes. within a team yes. yeah. uh, that's done that, and I think one, if you accept that at face value that you're playing a, a role within the team with, defined by your class, and you know a bit like the the, the climbing up on top of the icon, uh, taking the jewel at the eye, mm. you know, um, and the fighter cleaning his sword with the lizard men that he just if you you all take that kind of take, take on that kind of role if you accept that, I think. It makes for me D and D more palatable than if because what I like is the grit. I like the authenticity, mm. and I think accepting character class 
is some way of accepting it as a game. Yes. And yes. getting into the spirit of the yeah. game. Yeah. If you want reality, if you want a mm. simulation, if you want uh, something that is more of an authentic experience, go elsewhere. Yes. Because I think character classics give you... Yeah. They define the setting, don't they? Yeah, they do. And I think that's that's the thing. With D&D, there's no point playing D&D and going, oh, I'm happy about this. This is, this is ridiculously unrealistic. I'm not, well, it's not meant to... It, it, it kind of... Obviously, it's trying to be sort of realistic. But what it's trying to do is it's not trying to give you a feel for what it would be like no. to swing a sword round and hit someone. What it's trying to give you is a feeling of what it would be like to be those characters from heroic fantasy fiction yeah i think i think what i'm trying to say is that we have spent many when it comes to character classes i've put forward the argument to you that D is compromised mm. by its desire to be balanced yes however if you accept that and just say well it's part of the game it's a game yeah does, yeah yeah exactly you know? yeah yeah okay yeah well it's part of a game and also I think it's that thing of you. It's easy to accept once you accept that it is not trying to create a pseudo medieval reality with yeah. magic. What it's trying to do is create a reality based on fiction, movies, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's yeah. trying to create that kind of reality. Whereas other games are trying to say, imagine a fantasy world. What would it really be like? And what would happen if this happened to you or that happened to you? Yeah, you know. What about bards? Um, they're conspicuous by. Yeah. I'm not. I don't like bards. Well, second edition bards are okay because they're a kind of subclass of rogue, and that they they work very nicely in second edition. But first edition, it's like he he's had a moment of madness at the back. <laughs> he's got these bards, and you think, well, you got to have a strength of fifteen, you got to have high scores, and then you've got to start. I think you've got to start off as a fighter. Then switch class, switch classes to a thief between fifth and sixth level. Then, then switch classes again to a magic user. And you think, what's this? Just to play a loot? <laughs> really? It just seems it's insane. Well, it, I mean, some of the characters, some of the character classes are a bit insane. Yeah. In, in, I'm not. Don't get me wrong. Some well, of, monks. I always have a problem with monks. Monks, monks clerics, and bards. And clerics are boring. We know that. It's a fact. They're boring. <laughs> um, you know, they can turn undead. They never make the roll, and then the magic using the fight off to mop up the, you know, the, the cleric. Step aside, some zombies. I can turn undead. Oh, I failed the roll. The magic user kills them with a fireball. That's generally how D and D works. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it when it comes to bark, it, it, you always make this point that in the uh, first edition, uh, the strength is uh, fifteen or something. Should yeah, it? some of the in first edition, some of the. I, I mean, one of the one of the. the funny things about first edition is you've got these kind of weirdly high statistic requirements for certain classes so i think like a paladin you have to have a charisma of 18 right. and and it, it leads you down a certain road which is a bit problematic i think um, because people want to play these character classes but if you just roll 3d6 mm. you know a raw 3d6 you're probably never going to or very rarely going to get the stats you need mm. so what people do is point systems and rolling, you know, best of 6d6 or best of 4d6 and all this kind of A thing. redistribution. Redistribution of stats and all that. We, we've been down that road. Um, 
But one of the problems with that is you then get into this min-max kind of culture, don't you? Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think first edition D&D and second edition D&D kind of cultivate that. I mean, some of the stat bonuses are ridiculous. So, for example, um, looking at second edition here and hit probability, you only get you only get plus one hit probability if you've got a strength of 17. And you only get a damage adjustment, strength 16. Now... Come on, a, a guy with a strength of 14 or 15 is pretty strong. If he hits you, you're going to feel it more than a guy with a strength of 9. But, the, but you know, the guy with a strength of 15 and the guy with a strength of 9 have exactly the same to hit and damage bonuses, i.e. none. It just seems a bit ridiculous. So it, it kind of pushes you a bit down that road. So not only is it this idea that certain, if you want to play a ranger, if you want to play a paladin or a monk, You've got to have certain stats that are very, very good. It also pushes you down the road of thinking, well, I really need to up the stats. You know, if I'm going to be a fighter, I really want the super strength of 18 and then yeah. a D100. A bit like magic users as well. If you're a magic user, there's no point being one unless I think, in my view anyway, unless you've got a intelligence of about 16. I seem to remember you and uh, Kevin having endless debates about uh, super strength and the application of yeah, super strength. Yeah, it just gets out of hand. It just gets really, really silly where if people who are playing fighters all want strength of 18 because it just gives you the edge. You know, it gives you a lot more damage. And, and then, you know, you just get these people with the strength of 18 all the oh, What's the point of that? It just seems a bit, a bit silly. So it's not just... I think it goes back to something you said in the last podcast about it attracting power gamers. Well, does it attract power gamers? Or is, does the game, I think the game pushes you a bit down that road. Yeah. It does push you down that road. So again, it's like, say, going back to being a magic user, if you if you employ the rule about certain spells at certain levels, you need a certain degree, a certain intellect score. Well, there's no point being a magic user with an intelligence of 14. Because mm. if you manage to survive to sort of 10th level, you suddenly find you can't use the high-level spells because you haven't got the intelligence. So the game pushes you into, well, I'm not going to be a magic user unless I've got an intelligence of 18. Yeah. So it's like it pushes you into power gaming a little yeah. bit. I mean, we're off the point of character classes now, but I think there's an element of that to it. Yeah. You know? Well, you just mentioned levels, so that's the next uh, thing that you... Uh, yeah, levels. Um, oh. Again, a bit like character classes. It, it's, that, it's that interesting thing, isn't it, that... Again, what would role playing be if D and D hadn't had levels? You know that idea. Yeah. There's it's that idea, isn't it, of character progression? You know, yeah. which isn't isn't really necessary. If if this is the first role playing game, you don't need character progression, do you? You could say this is a game where you play a character and yeah. you just do stuff. There's no, you know. So, but it, but it brings in the idea of character progression. Yeah, I think I think it serves um, uh, a couple of pro, um, purposes, doesn't it? levels on the one hand as you say it's like character motivation mm, and yeah. um, it gives you a, a need a drive um, to mm. um, build your character up uh, through experiences I think it's also good for the uh, dungeon masters because it gives you a kind of a, an idea of how to pitch mm, yeah. uh, an adventure yes as yeah. Well. yeah it does yeah that's true but what I'd say is uh, for me personally I'd like to go back to real old school because I think the game was originally conceived that 
you get a group of friends together, you play for a while, get up to 10th uh, level, and then hit the reset button and go back yeah. to 1st yeah, yeah, level. Because yeah. I think once you get beyond 10th uh, yes. level, yeah. every game I've had where it's been above that has been daft. Yeah, I, I agree. Because I, I think it's one thing to be 8th, ninth level and be enjoy being powerful you know and, yeah. and being a powerful wizard or a powerful fighter being as i said earlier being that guy in the in the book or the film that can kind of tackle lots of monsters that's good fun but once you get to yeah 15th 20th level you know i mean i think was it the D D basic D D master set or companion set went up to like 25th level or something mm-hmm. and then it starts becoming like a superhero game yeah demigod. for me it's stopped yeah it demigod it's silly it stops being like fantasy and starts being like a superhero game so yeah. i agree i think it's good to have to build a character up and have a sense of you know they're powerful but it can go too far yeah next up uh, you want to talk about is Weapon proficiencies. So that seems very specific. It's very, it's very specific. It's, very hard to it's specific, and it sounds, I think, by comparison to the other two, it's a bit dull, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I think weapon proficiency, in particularly in first edition, because in second edition you get they introduce skills, don't they? Yeah. They introduce proficiencies and skills. But if you look at first edition, uh, weapon proficiencies is is a fascinating glimpse. I think it's like a little kernel, a little seed of what's to come in D&D and role-playing generally because basically weapon proficiency says if you're a fighter you are proficient in adding some like four weapons and if you pick up a weapon you're not proficient in you get minus two or something like that um, and then I think for magic users um, it's something like proficient in two weapons if you pick up a weapon you can't use you minus five and what's fascinating about it is it, it sort of starts it doesn't. It doesn't answer this question in first edition, but it's the beginnings of the answer to that question. Of I'm playing a magic user. There's a great sword on the floor. Why can't I pick it up and use it? And of course, in first edition, it's well, you just can't. Your character class says you can't, so don't. Mm. What weapon efficiency does is it gives a dungeon master, a games master, the ability to say, well, you can pick up the great sword as a magic user. But you're never going to be proficient in it, and you're at minus five. So you're to hit rolls a bit rubbish anyway. But you're also at minus five, hmm. and it kind of pushes the game in that direction of saying, "All right, character classes and professions and background. We're not we're not going to say you can't use something, but if you do use it, you're going to be penalised." When it comes to uh, combat, and this is a little bit of flavour in combat, isn't it? When it comes to combat, I think D and D. It's really boring. It can be, yeah, because it can just be rolling d20s. And yeah. Hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, damage. When we played yeah. those games in the noughties and we spent the whole afternoon uh, rolling hands for, a handful of dice mm. um, and just backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards doing it, I think this is a bit that, you know, it, it can go on forever. Yeah, it can do. Um, yeah, chipping away at people, chipping rolling away. a d20. And, and then the, all the maths calculating yeah. and thakor and yeah. they, you know it, this is where I think it, it loses it and this is where I think is where where I've been able to reconcile uh, D&D is by just saying it's a game yeah, yeah. with yeah. numbers yeah. and subtractions and but additions. that's where that's where magic makes it oh sorry well, you're not allowed that. to you've got can't mention per- that yeah 
But what makes a fight interesting is, of course, the magic user, which is the best character class. Oh, come on to that. And what's the <laughs> element of the uh, rule that you don't like? Well, the element that I don't like, I mean, I, again, I was tempted by the, as I, as I said earlier, the statistic bonuses, because I think they're stupidly high. Yeah. Know, but we've mentioned that. I, I think the one thing I've always struggled with in first edition D&D, and it's the same in second edition D&D, is saving throws. They just seem like random numbers. Yeah. You know, I've never, I mean, admittedly, the saving throws aren't given in, Player, first edition players, Amber, but I think we can still talk about them because I think they are in second edition, uh, if I'm right. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think the, I think the thing with uh, saving rolls as well, they they an arbitrary number, but they're mm. also for arbitrary things. Bending yes. bars, yeah, bending well, bars, bending bars. What does it well, have to be a bar? Define a bar. A what would be a bar? In that case, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what is When's a bar? When's a bar not a bar? At yeah. what point do I say, is, is this a bar? Can I bend yeah. it? Yeah. No, it's not a bar. It's a girder. What can I try? No, it's a girder, not a bar. But <laughs> but going, <laughs> let's just give some examples, right? So, priest, cleric. Call them priests in second edition. Don't, don't matter. Don't make them more interesting. It doesn't. Um, priest. Paralysation, poison or death magic, 10. First level, first level cleric. 10 or more on a d20. So if someone casts some death magic at you, it's a 10 or more to save against it. Okay. Warriors, fighters, it's 14. Wizards, it's 14. Rogues, thieves, it's 13. Why? Why? Why those Why? numbers? Why? Why those numbers? There's no, there is no rhyme or reason to those numbers. It should really be, my gut instinct, it should be some kind of role against a relevant statistic, shouldn't it? Yeah, so it... But, it, but it's not. It's uh, just a made-up number. Oh, it relates to an attribute, <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can get some some attribute bonuses. I think get poison, you get constitution, can kind of help. Right. But the target number is still just arbitrary. Why is a, why is a cleric better at resisting poison than a thief or a wizard? Why? I don't get it. What, the help of the gods? But that's that's not the case because <laughs> on other saving throws they're worse, you know. Breath weapon, well, sixty the, breath weapon, sixteen or more. Breath weapon. Well, the gods can be fickle. Well, they can, but they can save against certain things. Being but pretty, pretty weird, you know. It's it just seems like a lot of random numbers, and I think it comes back to that thing you've pointed out, the, the game balance thing. It's yeah. obsessed with balance. So what it's done is they've come up with these saving throws that think, okay, all right, clerics are better at resisting poison, but magic users are better at resisting something else. And it, it's all kind of nicely balanced. Well, it, well, it is, but it don't make any sense no. whatsoever. And it, it's always kind of rubbed me up the wrong way when you're sitting around the table and your character, your character class gets some lousy target figure for the saving throws. And you think, why? Why is he no good at this? There's no reason. Before, before we move on uh, and, and end this section, um, I want to go back to um, the bard. Right. Do we have to? What? No, Doc Griff no, no, no. Oh, Doc Griffiths. Yeah. Uh, and he's a doctor. <laughs> he's a doctor of role playing. So, is he? Yeah. Mm. And it's, I've never known anyone play a bard. No, I can believe that. I can believe that. I've played a bard. You played a bard in second edition. Well, I did, but you, I still played a bard. Yeah, the bard in second edition is good. 
I like the Nothing Bard. Nothing wrong with it. I like the Bard in the second edition. I'm not having a go. I don't have a problem with the second edition Bard. It's first edition Bard I have a problem with. Because in the second edition, <laughs> the, bard in, the Bard in the second edition yes. is a dabbler. Yes. I like yeah, the idea of being I think a I've played a Bard as well in second edition. Nothing wrong with it. But the trouble with me playing a Bard in one of Kevin's games is that I wasn't allowed to do anything. No, you weren't, were you? No. no. I wanted to tumble off a roof. <laughs> off a roof. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Yeah. I was thought, I think you'll find that the manufacture of these tiles mean that you can't tumble. Well, what's just the point? It's, like, it's like in the room, then. <laughs> it's just like you just speak like that. Uncanny that. But, yeah, and I, I couldn't tumble. I was barred. You were barred. Barred from being yeah. a bard. Your bard was constantly barred, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I don't have a problem with second edition bards. They're kind of logical, they fit in. They're, they're quite an interesting character class. It's just first edition. They're just, this is insane. What, what is he talking about? What, what what bard is this he's talking about? He has to be changed character classes three times and have all these ludicrously high stats. Beyond me. Just beyond me. I don't know. I don't, know what, I don't understand it. Okay. Well, let's close the lid on the player's handbook. Okay. We're going to head now to a blackened heath. Where shall we to meet again? To talk magic. Oh, yeah. The White Dwarf, part two. Anyway, having staggered out of Moria into Dale, blooded and blinking in the sunlight, where should your players go next? Hopefully, they're now sold on AD&D, so it's time to hit them with some full-strength swords and sorcery. What better than the Halls of Tism Thane from issue 18? Seriously, is there a better scenario title for an AD&D adventure anywhere? Albi Fiore was channeling the spirits of Robert E. Howard here, and not just with the title, the whole scenario has a rich, decadent atmosphere to it reminiscent of the Conan stories. Once again, the scenario features a strong, interesting plot as the characters are drawn into a fraternal feud. Three brothers plot both with and against each other, resulting in grisly death and the unwitting unleashing of a fearsome guardian, driven mad with grief and regret. Just the sort of drama the player should relish becoming involved in. There are a number of subplots, too, that the dungeon master can have fun with. A missing merchant's daughter, the reports of night things terrorising nearby villages. The setting is evocative and atmospheric. The halls themselves are located on an island in a lake inside an old volcanic crater. And once inside, the mood of dissolution and turpitude is maintained. A once lavish complex slowly fades and crumbles. Black lotus and hooker pipes still litter the guest quarters, while down the hall is a, an abandoned harem. This is a very open scenario, by which I mean... There's no railroading of the characters, either in terms of the locations or the story itself. There are many potential paths, 
through the halls and one or two exceptions the rooms are intelligently populated. Albe Fiore has designed an ecological dungeon, as per the dungeon architect. There's a reason why the monsters and the NPCs are where they are, which adds to the cohesive feel of the scenario and enhances the plot. There are some standout locations within the complex. The Hall of Mirrors is a particular highlight and gives the Dungeon Master scope to extend the adventure way beyond what is written on the page. There are so many ways that the players can tackle the adventure narrative. I think it rewards role-playing over full frontal assault and all that combat. The motivations of the main NPCs mean that they're unlikely to attack the party on sight. So the Dungeon Master has ample opportunity to engage in some Robert E. Howard-inspired grandstanding and plot development. Again, with some thought, there are many hooks and ample scope to allow the Dungeon Master to extend this to a wider campaign. When I ran it for the first time, my players and I enjoyed it hugely. The immersive plot really drew the characters in, and one of the NPCs became a recurring feature of the campaign. Sometimes an ally of the characters, at other times an antagonist. I ran it a number of years later at university for a different group of players, this time as a one-off. I made one modification. The one thing I felt that scenario was missing was a barnstorming climax to round it off. It needed an apocalyptic ending in the style of some universal horror movies like The Bride of Frankenstein with the complete destruction of the halls. The last act was a frantic attempt by the PCs to try and escape while the complex collapsed around their ears. As I remember, they did make it out. Just. As I noted above, the Lich Way in Issue 9 was the first scenario proper to appear in White Dwarf, but I think it was with the Halls of Tizen Thane that the magazine realised its potential in being able to push the quality, wonderfully written adventures that were easily equal of TSR's output at the time. From this point on, I don't think it ever looked back. The Games Master Screen! Welcome again, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Okay, we've turned away from the room of the RPG rambling and taken to the blackened heath under a blighted tree to talk about magic. <laughs> now this section, the Games Master's screen, usually involves rolling on a random generator and talking bobbins about a supplement or a feature to illustrate the game under discussion. And today is no exception. I'm going to erect this barrier in front of us. I've used the 5th edition screen. It's a good one, isn't it? Mm, very nice. It's the modern thing of having a landscape. Yes, uh, it's true that, isn't it? Modern games, yeah, the old ones were, were portrait, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And didn't, didn't quite work. It's a bit too high, yeah. weren't they? Mm. But 
they're good aren't they aren't mm. they? it's good and it spreads out and it kind of yeah. puts a, yeah, yeah. a useful barrier between us I like the picture on that side as well so okay but we're equals in this game and before we get on to uh, all that palaver okay um, before we get on to the duel the duel of magic mm-hmm. I've been holding you back. I've been saying you have. you've yeah. been holding. Yeah, I've yeah. saying you can't talk about magic, but I'm going to give you license now. What is it about Dungeons and Dragons and magic that you like so much? Well, I I think that magic is where Dungeons and Dragons comes into its own. I really do because I think the spells. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever played a game where the spells the wizards have, perhaps not the clerics. Um, are so kind of fantastic. And I also like the magic system for D&D. It's kind of simple. It's nice and simple. Because this idea that you just remember spells and when you've cast them, they leave your head. It seems on the face of it a little bit naive or a bit daft. But I think the other way of looking at it, it's a bit like magic. It's like magical. A lot of other games... Um, have point systems, don't they? So a lot of, so, you know, it costs you so much to cast a spell and this, that and the other. Whereas uh, in D&D, you know, if you've got a powerful spell, it's there in your head and you can cast it. You don't have to worry about points. You know, example, I suppose, and, I, you know, forgive me for talking RuneQuest, but a bit like RuneQuest, you've got a powerful spell in RuneQuest, it's going to cost you, say, healing six. You know, that's a powerful spell. You can reattach your limb, something like that, can't you? Yeah. Uh, but it's going to cost you six power points. So if you want to cast a powerful spell, you can only cast maybe a few in a game because you're going to de- deplete your power points. Whereas in D&D, if you've got a powerful spell, you don't have to worry about points. It's in your head and you can cast it. You know, once it's gone, it's gone, but it's there to be used. You don't have to make those kind of uh, decisions about how to divvy up the points and whether it's worth using the points for a powerful spell. It's there to be used, and that's what makes wizards, and, and some, to some extent clerics, kind of powerful spellcasters in the game and that's what I like about it. It's nice and simple and the spells, as we'll go on to see, are a lot of fun. I think the spells are a lot of fun and you can do kind of innovative things with them and I like that. Yeah, I I like it as well. I think we've uh, commented before the difficulty with magic in role-playing games is very often they just become mechanical, don't they? They, The magic is kind of taken out of them. And you're right. I I mean, some some D&D spells are mechanical. So things like Fireball and Lightning Bolt, you know, it's a kind of roll lots of dice, do lots of damage, that kind of thing. So there is a mechanical element to some spells, but there's a good, I would say a good 50% of the spells, if not slightly more, have that kind of uh, thing where you can be innovative with them, you can be creative with them, you can use them in different situations in different ways. And that really, for me, is what makes the game. I, As you know, I struggle in D&D if I'm not a magic user. Because I just like that idea. It makes the game what it is for me. It's the real exciting, interesting bit of the game. Um, I mean, again, magic user spells, really, cleric spells. You know, I used to think sleep was a cleric spell, but then I realised it was just a cleric spell sending me to sleep. It's so boring. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, having said that, I've probably been a bit unfair to clerics. All the clerics out there, I know I've upset you. Um, but I think the problem with clerical spells because we're going to go on to talk about magic user spells, aren't we? Yeah. I think the problem with clerical spells is that you get put under a bit of pressure as a cleric to pick 
dull but useful spells. So some of the cleric spells are pretty good. There are some good spells there. But you get put under pressure, I think, from other players. Um, to be utilitarian. Yes, to have the yeah. heal, healing spells, cure poison, cure disease, that kind of stuff. And the kind of it, it may, it's a bit dull, it's a bit boring. Whereas the magic user, because he doesn't have those kind of spells, the magic user isn't under that kind of pressure there. I mean, you know, a bit of pressure, I suppose, to have a fireball and that kind of thing. But they've a little more, more flexibility. Uh, whereas the cleric, I think, it, it, you know, you get that problem, don't you? I mean, we, I think we once played a game uh, where one player berated another player because their cleric hadn't picked enough healing spells, you know, and you, that's the thing, isn't it? You think, yeah. oh, well, I've got to just pick these dull spells for everyone else's benefit. One of the things uh, that I think the magic contributes towards is that feeling uh, that you mentioned previously and that thing about being that guy mm, when yes. I created a character in one of your games Azir Voon who I've mentioned previously um, it was a magic user a wizard who was kind of uh, had a scientific approach to magic and we had little side plots didn't we where he would go looking for components of spells and yes, that added a lot yeah. of flavour and interest and he felt like a rounded character but as well I felt like a powerful wizard I felt when I was playing that character that I had the power of magic behind me Yes, and yeah. I don't think I've ever felt that way in any other game no, I, I think I think you're right. Any other, I, I mean, there may be there may be games out there that, and I'm sure people let us know that, that do that. But from our experience, that that we've never played a role playing game that really let you feel like a wizard. Yeah, D and D is the one that makes you feel like you have spells that are powerful, and also there's a lot of colour to them as well. Like you say, the material components bit. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, you know, you need a pinch of salt and a grasshopper's leg or something like that. It just adds that little bit of colour to the whole thing, doesn't it, you know? Yeah. I think for the person who's playing the magic user, it's a different game experience. So you just said that you prefer playing the magic user and you don't like playing any others. And I think it's because you by nature are a tactical player aren't you so you like yeah. the idea yeah. of tactics and it becomes for the magic user a game of when to expend your resources yes yeah what is the point to make this particular spell fit with this situation mm. to its maximum thing yeah so all the time you can see the person who's playing the magic user is making those kind of calculations Infuriatingly, they usually do that with the nose in the player's handbook as well, don't they? So. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yes. <laughs> yes, so oh. the duration of this spell. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right, uh, because it feels like that as a magic user, that you, you're quite a weak character class. It's quite weak. You don't have many hit points. You're no good in a fight. All you've got are these spells, which are quite powerful. Um, and that they're the spells that are going to help you survive. So it's like a kind of game of wits, almost, with a games master, isn't it? Almost yeah. that sense of, like, he's going to throw things at me. All I've got are these spells. How can I employ them in such a way to maximum benefit? You know? And the tactical uh, dungeon master will put things in place to kind of force the magic user to expend yes. their spells yeah. Yeah. Uh, before the big yeah. guy... Yeah, exactly. on the yeah. Scene. You, yeah, you're in a room and you, you've got your fireball spell and you think you might want to save that for the 
later on but you if you put in a tight spot you're gonna to have to use it and i suppose that's always that it's a bit like we were saying in the, earlier about that team game thing in that you know protecting the magic user so the magic user isn't in a position where he has to use that to survive he, he's in a position where he's safe and he can use that for the benefit of the party later on there's an element yeah. of that isn't there you know and who else is going to carry the torch who else is going to carry the torch yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everyone else has got a sword and shield. He's the only one with a free hand. Yeah. So, your favourite character class is a glorified candelabra. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> absolutely. But at least he can use edge weapons. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for this then? We're going to go into this duel, a battle of wits, a battle of minds. But before we do that, I think we need to send in the high horses. The high bring? horses, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so today's um, Games Master screen is brought to you by the D10. The D10, okay. So what I'd like you to do is roll for the height of your horse. Okay. Okay, I don't know how to measure this. You is measure this in, in hands, hooves? Hands, feet. hands, feet. I don't, I don't know how do I measure a <laughs> horse. Daisy. Yeah. Let's do Hang it on. in feet, so I mean feet. feet. Okay. You've got ten. Ten? Ten. That is a high, <laughs> that's a high horse, isn't it? Yeah, it is a high horse. <laughs> You're going to need a ladder for that one. Okay. I've, I've got a one, typically. That's a, that's a short horse, isn't it? Short horse. It's not the first time we've been called a short horse. But <laughs> it's, my, it's not a horse, it's a, it's a dwarven pony. It's a dwarven. You got your dwarven pony at last. Yeah. You always wanted one. Now you've got one. Now I've got a dwarven giraffe. An elvish giraffe. You've got a dwarven pony. The boule will just go under your legs, won't it? And it just will, go uh, like a heat-seeking missile to me. And eat your pony. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, so we've got a high horse and yes. a short horse. Are you ready for this? Yes. Now, are you using your spell book or have you got them in your slots? I've memorised them. you got them in your memorised I've got them memorised, but you do realise when I've discussed the spell, I will not be able to remember anything about it. So don't go back. Because it right. would have left my memory completely. So it's one use only. <laughs> it's one okay. use only until I've had a night, good night's sleep. Okay, so let's roll for initiative. Okay. Yeah. Oh. I've got three. And I've got two. Oh, two. two. Oh, dear me. Yeah. That means I go first. Okay. I'm going to cast my favourite spell, Magic Mouth. Magic Mouth? Okay. Yeah. Why would you pick that? Well, I pick I pick this one because I like spells versatility, and I think you should never leave home without magic mouth. Well, you should never leave your house without setting a magic mouth up for, for a start. Because as, as a wizard, you know you should have them on every door. You know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the magic mouth is great because it kind of uh, brings in ventriloquism and um, distraction all in one. So if you stick a magic mouth on the end of a, a thieves uh, arrow you can have somebody talking behind the bushes and send the orcs in one direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like it, yeah. And you can have them set up on all your uh, equipment so that if anybody tries taking them, you can... I, I, I always have one on the back of my head. Why wouldn't you? Just like your thing about having an eye on the end of your finger. It is so like... look it. around corners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was always my superpower, to have an eye on the end of my finger. Well, with the magic... With a magic oh, a mouth mag on the end of your finger. <laughs> a mouth on the end of your finger. Yes. <laughs> Tell me what's on the other side. Yeah. It can't see. It can't see, can no. it? But, 
but it it, it can it, you can alert, can't you? If somebody's doing a backstab yeah, on you, yeah, yeah, you can have a mouth on your hat, couldn't you? Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, I think it can it see, can it? Well, you can set like a alarm, radius. Isn't it? It's like yeah, an alarm. Yeah, yeah, it's like an alarm. It can't tell you what it sees, but if it sees, yeah, someone attacking you, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. Vern always had one on his hat? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So nobody could ever get him mm. from behind. Yeah, it was difficult when he was walking down the street and he's. Uh, uh, yeah. Magic Mouth was talking that to him. Interesting choice. And I, I suspect, I suspect, and it's worth mentioning, I think, at this point, I suspect you've gone down the same road as me in that I've ignored, and I'm not, this isn't a spoiler about the three yeah. spells, but I've ignored the fireballs and lightning bolts and magic missiles. Yeah, they're boring, aren't they? they? Well, no, they're, they're just they're a part of the artillery. They, exactly. They're just part of the artillery. And whilst, uh, you know, you'd be a poor magic user if you had access to fireball and didn't remember it. That would be bad form, I think, because there is an expectation you're going to be able to blow something away at some point. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, they're a bit boring to talk about, you know, because that's, yeah. they're just like, bam, lots of dice, lots of damage. That's the, the, it. The other good thing about Magic Mouth is trying to fit it within 25 words what you want it to say. Oh, right. So it's yeah. like yeah. it's like Twitter, isn't it? Yes, That's it's like a magical my, Twitter. I got all my Twitter practice. <laughs> Gary Gary gets us there first. <laughs> Magic mouth. And uh, to do that, all you need is a small comb of honey. Small comb of honey. Is that you need? Okay. Yeah. Are you going to blast me with yours? Yes. Uh, my first choice is... Um, well, my first choice is enlarge. Is it? Or is it? Now, good thing about enlarge is it's a reversible spell. Yeah. So, actually, my choice is shrink. Right. right. Shrink is a really clever first level. I think it's a first level spell. It is a first level, yeah, first level spell. So it's not enlarge. Enlarge, I, I don't want to talk about it. Enlarge is a bit of a strange one. But not, not as useful, but shrink. It's good for riding high horses. It's good for riding high horses. You can get a high horse out of it. But I don't <laughs> think we need to do that. I think we've got, I've got a high horse already. And I should soon be climbing on it. Um, but shrink is, is a useful spell because you can... There's sort of a multitude of things you can cast it on. Inanimate objects. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not thinking, and I'll, I'll make this point here, I'm not thinking that it's much use for casting on an opponent because they get a saving throw. And I, I have a dim view of spells that get a saving throw because I think there's a lot of spells in the spell book where it seems powerful, so yeah. flesh to stone, that kind of thing. You know, ooh, I can turn the dragon to stone. You won't. It'll get a saving throw and it'll have magic resistance and it won't work, so you may as well not bother having it. So yeah. I, I, when I pick spells, I kind of avoid the ones that have a bit of doubt over whether they'll work. I think it's good to pick spells that you know will work. And shrink will work on inanimate objects. So, big sword, suddenly he's got a cocktail stick. Guy comes at you with a great sword, suddenly he's got a dagger. Think about shrinking a fighter's breastplate so he can't breathe. Think about shrinking the floorboards under the feet so they fall through the floor. Find a door that's locked that no one can open. Shrink the door, pops off its hinges. Multitude, multitude of uses. I've had a great fun with the shrink spell over the years. I do think it's a great spell. Seems really, on the list of spells you think, it's boring, isn't it? But yeah. it's not. It's got a lot of kind of potential, you know. Dear, dear listener, I'm going to give the first round to Judge Blythe. Very kind of you. Let's roll for initiative. Okay. Eight. Eight. Mm. Difficult. Five. 
five. We're doing very well here with the initiative. I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> go on. Now you'll say this is typical of me. Are you ready? Go on. I know what's coming, I think, but go on. Leamon's tiny hut. Leamon's tiny hut. Yes. Well, why have you picked that? Well, let me just get over the disappointment that it's not like Shimrod's uh, good. tiny hut <laughs> in uh, Leoness, because Shimrod used to have a hut, didn't he, that he used to take on his travels. Yes, yeah. And he, yeah. he would enlarge it and then spend the night in his, in his hut. Yes. It's not quite like that. It's a hemisphere that goes over the top of you and uh, does protection, doesn't it? Mm. Over the night. Let's face it, being a magic user is all about having a good rest, isn't it? It's having a sleep. And yeah, you don't yeah. want to have yeah. your sleep interrupted because mm. um, you know, it means that your powers are going to be diminished mm. otherwise. So I think you always have to have a Leoman's tiny hut. Um, the other uh, thing is, is that I think, let's face it, too often these spells are all about the pyrotechnics. When it comes to magic, really, they should follow Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Because um, if you were devising magic, you'd sort out the stuff that was going to make things easier first, wouldn't you? Like doing the washing up yes. and so on and so on. And just having somewhere to sleep at night isn't yes, like that's very true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go for Leoman's tiny hut because I like the Vantian sound of it, even though it's quite disappointing. It's not a hut. It's not a hut. In my imagination, it's a hut. Yeah, it can be a hut. You could say it's a hut. Yeah. It looks like a hut. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that, is there? No. It's quite a good... And, and I, I like the idea that you could be safe in your hut while the rest of the party's butchered in the night by wolves. Yes. <laughs> wake up in the morning, fully refreshed, with all your spells memorised and everybody's dead. <laughs> Always funny as a magic... That's one of the funny sides of being a magic user. Everyone's being killed, I'll turn invisible. <laughs> or I'll fly up to the ceiling. <laughs> it's a bother. <laughs> it also means you don't have to bother with all that thing of, right, who's on watch? Are you on watch first? Well, yeah, I'll well, do the do. first watch. They yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. They do, you don't. No, You're I'm, all right. I'm in my hut. You're in my tiny hut. Leave yeah. me alone. Yeah. Goes with my tiny <laughs> watch heart. Out for the, watch out for the wolves. <laughs> yeah. Goes with my tiny horse. Yeah. Tiny horse and a tiny hut, yeah. yeah. There's a tiny horse in a tiny horse. Right, go on, yes, move. Okay, my next choice. My next choice is Phantasmal Force. Phantasmal Force. Phantasmal Force. You'll notice at this point, and I think you're the same, we've not gone for those really high-level spells, have we? As no. Yeah. Well, you have to. You get very acquainted with those low-level ones, don't you? you because do you've bit, got to make yeah. them work, yeah, haven't you? You've got to make them work. Well, that's it, you see, and I think they're kind of accessible. It's a bit too easy to sort of say, oh, well, I've... A great power word kill or wish or time stop or teleport are great spells. Well, they yeah. are, but you've got to be really high level, so they're not really, for me, they're not really a consideration. No. But fant- I like Phantasmal Force for, for similar reasons that I like the enlarge or shrink spell. In that, it, again, it has a multitude of uses. Because you can create an illusion, basically. You can create an illusion, and it's an, you can create an illusion that can do damage as well. So you can actually kill people with an illusion. Um, so like Stannis Baratheon could... yeah well yeah yeah. it's kind of illusory things you know. Illu- I mean in Dungeon Master's Guide it, it sort of mentions uh, an illusory fireball so you know you could cast a real fireball and the next round cast an illusion one you've got two fireballs haven't you and it yeah. does damage you know it can kill people it does mention that you know if you yeah. get an illusory pit with spikes in and they fall in they'll take damage so it's kind of but, but it's not just kind of a, a heavy artillery spell it, it's a, you can do anything with it can't you yeah. It's creating an illusion. Yeah. And, and the nice thing about it, going back to the saving throw thing, is that in Player's Handbook, 
it talks about people who try and disbelieve it get a saving throw. But if you if you cast it properly, you know, if you cast it when they're not looking, they won't try and disbelieve it because you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't try and disbelieve a pit with spikes in. No. Because it, why would you? You know, it's totally, it, it's kind of nonsense for the games masters to say, oh, everyone's going to try and disbelieve this. Well, you wouldn't, well, you don't go around just trying to disbelieve things. Oh, I do. So, well, some, some things you do, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, they are real. Um, so, so whilst it does have a saving throw element to it, it, the saving throw is unlikely that they're going to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, so I do, I like it, because you can, you can do lots with it, you know. You can do something quite deadly. You can do something quite deadly with it, or you can just do something a little bit tricksy with it. You know. See, that one would have been a good one to put up against uh, Magic Mouth because you could have it, everything you said there is, is, is Magic Mouth is more a specific version, isn't it, of doing that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of yeah. versatile yeah. use. Of, and and uh, that's what I was saying earlier at the beginning. That, that's the the beauty of some of the spells that they're quite they're beautifully kind of vague. Yes. And there's something about that, you know, you can create an illusion, you can create an illusion of some description within certain parameters, you know, how long it lasts and how big it is and all that kind of stuff. I suppose but, it depends if you've got a cooperative uh, DM, though, doesn't well, you it? Well, do, you do, yeah, you, you do need that. But again, uh, I suppose, I don't know, you, you can get that problem with the spells that you get games masters who are, who are deliberately awkward and say, oh, no, everyone's going to try and disbelieve this. Yeah. Because then you think, oh, it's not quite realistic to do that you do get that problem but generally these are spells that you can play around with you know you can have them in your your magic user's back pocket can't you and at some point in the game think do you know what would be good here just to create an illusion even if it's an illusion that allows the party to escape I mean that's sometimes the best thing about some of these spells it allows the party when they're in trouble if you're in trouble you can cast some you know if you're in trouble you can cast an illusory crevasse across the room that the the opponents kind of stop at and think there's a huge gaping canyon between you and them it gives you that space and that moment where you think right they're going to work out this illusion eventually probably but it stops them getting to us for a bit that kind of thing well in the face of that my tiny hut seems insignificant so once again i'm going to give this round to you as well Oh, that's very good of you. You are a generous games master, aren't you? Yeah. I've always said that. Yeah. yeah. It's because I'm on this little horse. You're on the little horse, aren't you? In the tiny hut. <laughs> I'm feeling, yeah. feeling insignificant. With a magic mouth saying, let him win, let him win. <laughs> okay, final round. Initiative. Okay. Yeah, that's all for initiative. I've got two. That means I'll roll one. you got three? Got three. Okay. Here it goes. All right. Final spell? Yes. Final spell. A little bit more high level this, but polymorph self. Oh. Polymorph self. Now I know that you've used this I have many, yeah. many occasions. I have. I have. Yeah. This is why I need the high horse, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Call it in. Ring the high horse. Calm down. Yeah. Um, no, polymorph self. Again, to go back, there's polymorph other, isn't there? But yeah. I'm not so keen on that because... If you use that as an offensive spell, oh, I'll turn the dragon into a frog. Oh, hang on, it's not worked. We're going to have to fight it anywhere. I should have I'd never had the spell. But Polymorph Self, again, it's going to work because you cast it on yourself. Yeah. And again, it gives it just gives you so much kind of scope for doing interesting things. You know, on the one hand, you've got the obvious things like turn yourself into a tiger, 
and get all those extra tiger attacks with claws and stuff like that and make yourself quite deadly as a magic user you know mm-hmm. when you're not deadly normally but you can actually get involved in a fight turn yourself into a mouse or a, or a sparrow and go scouting ahead it's as good as it's as good as invisibility you know if you turn yourself into a mouse it's as good as invisible isn't it yeah you know yeah. but it's not invisibility it's got other uses as well so it's that kind of great spell like I call it, like the other two it's got that potential that you've got that in your spell book and playing the game, you think, come a moment in this game where I can t- turn into something else for whatever reason, and that being something else, another creature gives me, comes with abilities, it comes with flight, it comes with either you know, being able to fly or being able to um, be undetectable or being huge and dangerous all those kind of things and if you combine it with a fly spell, well yes <laughs> or, or is it? Or is it? Or is it? So th- I think uh, this is the high horse moment, it isn't is it? The like, last moment, last isn't time, it? last time we had this new feature. <laughs> now, do you want me to set this up for you, or are you are you okay? Should I? I'll set it up. I think. Right. Okay. And I, I think it comes back to the uh, discussion we were having a minute ago about um, generous games masters versus psychopaths. I was going to say mean spirited, but I think <laughs> I think actually you're right. Psychopaths, yes, who won't let you do anything in their game. So let's set the scene. Um, it was a typical opening to one of Kevin's games where we were in a tavern. Suddenly, it all went dark, and it didn't just go dark. It was a darkness spell, so you couldn't see anything. Or was it a spell? It was. It was. It, was, it was unclear. I think later on it became apparent that it was a darkness yeah. spell, so lighting the torch didn't help. It was kind of almost like blindness, wasn't it? Yeah. And we were attacked by um, these figures in the dark that we couldn't see, and it was kind of one of those scenarios, situations where you thought, there's no really seems to be no way out of this. No, because every time we tried to hit, um, we couldn't hit because we couldn't see them because it yeah. was pitch black. Yeah, well, they could hit us because they could see in the dark, obviously. Um, even characters that could see in the dark were unable to see in the yeah. dark. I think you took the approach of just standing there and saying, "All right, I'm just going to stand here, let him hit me." Yes, which cause... annoyed him because <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like saying, "You're going to, have to kill me, then, aren't you? Yeah. You're going to have to take that decision to kill yeah. me." <laughs> but it, but that didn't matter, did it? Because you came up with a gen- I, well, genius I, idea. I'd like to think so. I'm not. A, it's not a genius. That's what other people say, isn't it? But yeah. I, it's. <laughs> but. I think, now I get in the right order, I cast a fly spell on myself so I could fly first. Yeah. Um, which lasts for a good hour or so, actually. Um, if you look at the rules, it takes so many turns per level, and turns 10 minutes in D&D. Yeah. It's not a combat round, a turn. So, so you've got that for a few hours. And then I decided to cast Polymorph Self, and I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'd, I'd recently watched Dumbo, and <laughs> I decided I'm going to turn myself into the biggest thing that polymorph self allows, and that's an elephant. Doesn't doesn't allow you to turn yourself into monsters or anything bigger, but an elephant. I thought the biggest thing, and I'm going to fly at the roof, crash through the roof, like a battering ram, or through a wall or wherever, a battering ram. Get through. That'll let some light in, um, and it gives us an escape opportunity. I can put people on my back and fly out. You know, it's going to look impressive. It'll in look the impressive film. in the film. Might look a bit like Dumbo, <laughs> like a bit like that, but. You know, it would save our bacon. Smash a hole in the roof, come back, you all get on my back, and we fly out to safety. Brilliant. Yeah. But apparently, 
the games master said that I couldn't get any momentum as a flying elephant. He seemed to be suggesting that I'd turn myself into a balloon. <laughs> a balloon, not a balloon. I'm a flying elephant. And if I'm a flying elephant, I've got the momentum and the strength of an elephant in flight. But and, and there began afterwards an exchange <laughs> of emails, which I no longer have, sadly. <laughs> Painful. Which I think in the end he conceded that he was wrong. It was a bit late. It was about a week later, wasn't it? Yeah. It was... <laughs> Sounds childish. We ended up. Top of his childish. <laughs> when. Because uh... as it happened, we were in the pitch black being hit by these things and you were floating for all intents. I was floating of... like a balloon. I was a balloon. Balloon. You're floating. I had a terrible miscalculation in that I thought I'd turn myself into a huge, great, hulking, flying elephant. What I'd really done is turn myself into a big balloon-shaped, elephant-shaped balloon. And then, uh, dear listener, we had the problem of getting you out of a pub um, as an elephant, I think. <laughs> Afterwards, yeah. I think, the, I think the tavern owner objected, didn't allow elephants in yeah. normally. He wanted to do, he smuggled an elephant in it. Had a strict rule on elephants. Very strict rule on uh, pachyderms. My uh, last spell, we've already covered it, it's enlarge. Is it? I went for enlarge as yeah. well. Oh. Yeah, because I've used enlarge in lots of. But as uh, enlarge, not enlarge, not a shrink. Right, right, okay. Just call it an inferiority complex that I've gone for enlarge rather than shrink. Well, it does, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? You know what? Yeah, enlarge. Yeah. It's a bit It's giving too much away there. <laughs> How long does this last? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not long. <laughs> Although I don't know, long enough, perhaps. Long enough. Yeah, long, long enough. enough. Six rounds. So what's a round? Again, again for all the reasons for all the reasons that you've given for um, uh, for the shrink, and large is very versatile, and I've used it to kind of throw the stone in front of the door. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, uh, turn into a boulder mm. and stop the bad guys uh, getting through. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's just sometimes benefits to being bigger, isn't there? If you want to get yep. to high places, yeah, um, there are benefits to uh, getting bigger. Also, it's a useful way because you know I'm very practically minded. Um, you know, again, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow, famous wizard, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, you, the hygiene factors. You can clear your gutters out, can't you, without using a ladder? Yeah, it's useful. Although you'd think that they've invented a clean gutter spell. Yeah. Like you said, these magic users, they've invented all these spells for fighting monsters, but, but most of your day is probably spent at home thinking, mm, should we invent a make a cup of tea spell? You know? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to give that round to you well, as no, well. Well, no, I disagree. I think, I think you should have that round. All oh, right. Because I think we've, we've, we've picked up on something here. Have we discovered the greatest magic user spell of all? In uh, large. We both picked it. Yeah, In large, strong shrink. Independently, yeah. I think maybe I, I should concede. So enlarge, enlarge and or shrink. It's the, it's greatest, the greatest magic spell. user spell. It's the greatest spell. The greatest indisputable. Spell. It's indisputable now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you don't want anyone writing in about that. It's, it's indisputable. The White Dwarf, part three. Having escaped Moria and bested the halls of Tism Thane, the play should finish with something truly epic. Now, the mention of the word epic you might think I'll be taking a look at Irelian, 
Daniel Colleton's six-part combination of a scenario, The Rising of the Dark, with a complete AD&D tone detailed alongside. Confession time. I never really got on with Irelian. I found it a little overwhelming. Maybe it was because its publication coincided with my crisis of confidence around the excess of information I was trying to process on Glorantha, as described in Grogpod episode 1. Maybe it was because, to my 13-year-old self, having to learn a new calendar, plus a complete new Chaucerian language, just to run an AD&D scenario seemed far too much like homework. Whatever the reason, I never ran it, then or since. So despite the fact I know many people think of it highly, I won't be looking at Aurelian here. Instead, let's tackle Paul Vernon's Troubles at Embertrees from issue 34. In the three prior issues, White Dwarf published a three-part article series by Paul Vernon called The Town Planner, all about designing and running your own towns and cities in AD&D. I wonder if Daniel Colleton was inspired by this series. This obviously fed into the troubles at Embertrees, but in contrast to Irillian, It never felt to me like there was a lot of required reading about medieval societies before you got to the exciting adventure stuff. Troubles at Embertrees details a village on a much more manageable scale and concentrates on the development of an atmospheric setting and a character-driven plot to propel the scenario. Make no mistake, though, there's still a lot of information here Embertrees is something of a mini-epic. Despite running to only five pages, the details are really packed in, by virtue of White Dwarf's predilection at the time for using a teeny tiny font. For me, the real strength of Troubles at the Embertrees is the setting. Paul Vernon provides a good deal of information and detail to add colour and bring the location to life. But it stays just on the right side of overwhelming the DM with information. I first read the scenario around the same time as I also read Robert Holstock's Mythago Wood. The woodland setting, together with the druidic villages and the affinity for the forest, mixed in my mind with the primal and magical Mythago wood to create a tangible sense of place. It's not a scenario for beginner DM. Paul Vernon presents a dizzying cast of non-player characters which needs careful managing. The relationships between the villagers are particularly well drawn, from petty jealousies to harbouring darker secrets to even more dangerous machinations as some plot against each other. Prior to running the scenario for my group, I drew a node map of all the NPC's relationships to enable me to keep track of them all, 
plus a timeline of the major events in the scenario with branches for the different outcomes depending on players' actions or inaction. Because the village of Embertrees is beset by multiple threats at once from outside and inside the village, this introduces a novel tactical focus for the players. What problem do they tackle first? Should they divide their resources? I remember my group focused on hunting down the nasties from the outside that were attacking the village and so took their eye off the ball when it came to the skullduggery between the villages themselves. Again, this is an open scenario that doesn't railroad a specific plot, so there are many ways it can play out. Typically, though, the scenario builds to a climax at the Temple of Pelan. Paul Vernon again creates a memorable setting employing some effective symbolism to create an eerie, unsettling mood. Depending on how events have gone earlier in the scenario, there are a number of dramatic encounters that can happen in the temple, with a grandstand finish in a lava-filled cavern, now where have I heard that before, that lives long in my memory. Loved it. So... There you go. Three great scenarios, all of which stand the test of time. Having played one whole session of D&D 5th edition, and maybe two by the time you hear this, I feel fully qualified to state that, with a bit of tweaking, each of these scenarios would work well with the latest rules. Just realise, though, the most recent of these scenarios was published in February 1983. What can I say? I'm a grognard. Next time, the monsters. Postbag! The phrase icon gets overused in this modern age, but the play's handbook is up there with the icons of popular culture in the 20th century. Like... Madonna's conical bra, for instance. Next time, we'll be looking at the Monster Manual, and at Daily Dwarf, we'll be selecting the best monsters from the pages of White Dwarf. Also, we'll be opening the box on D&D 5th edition, as we'll have played it three times by then, at both low level and at higher level. I've been impressed by the amount of correspondence that we've received following the first part of this episode. As I said earlier, all role players have a relationship with D&D in one form or another, so the postwoman has been over-encumbered when tromping up the steps to Dirk Towers. Thankfully, I've been storing them in my bundle of holding. I'm on Twitter, my preferred social media channel, at the Grognard File and you'll catch at Daily Dwarf there too. This is a comment from Ian Brumby, and it came via the comment section on thegrognardfiles.com. We started out with the Redbox version after a schoolmate, Mark, bought a copy of B1, In Search of the Unknown, and he sat next to me on the school bus and asked me if I had any idea what it was. Some kind of weird story with loads of numbers, 
but with orcs and monsters like the Hobbit. Over the course of a week in 1978, we finally figured out that we needed rules to go with it and tracked down a copy of D&D Basic from the multi-purpose games stroke twee craft shop at the top of an appropriately named Steep Hill in Lincoln. I think it must have been right on the cusp of a half term or a long weekend as I seem to recall continuous days spent charging through dungeons with a party of characters with the name of Bid, Bod and Bert. Very imaginative. One of our first encounters was a single one-hit-die skeleton and as fresh initiates to the Harryhausen Argonauts experience, the correct response to an animated skelly was, of course, run away! Despite the fact Mark was desperately trying to reassure us that we could comfortably beat the nasty and thus be able to go further than just the first room of the dungeon. Somewhere along the way, I got hold of a copy of both the Player's Handbook and Monster Manual for AD&D, and for whatever reason, it was decided that I'd take over the dungeon mastering duties. After Mark's long-suffering parents bought him a copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide for Christmas, failing to appreciate the Prime Directive's insistence that he couldn't even open their gift because he wasn't a Dungeon Master, there was no stopping us, and the following eight years or so were spent pretty much solidly role-playing anything and everything we could get our grubby mitts on. Thanks for that, Ian, although what you should be doing is continuing your sculpting work on the miniatures for the forthcoming God's War from Peterson Games, an epic Glorantham board game, so uh, get back to work. There's been loads of comments and emails to dirtthedice at gmail.com. Keep them coming, because I'm going to bring them all together for an extra at the end of the D&D episode, which will also include an interview with listeners Rick and Tim from the Old Scrotes RPG Club in Southport. In November, we'll be hosting the first ever Grog Meet in Manchester. There's going to be games of RuneQuest, Stormbringer, Gangbusters, and the West End edition of Star Wars, and Actung Cthulhu. At the meetup, we'll be launching the Grognard Files fanzine. And all these projects have been possible with the support of Patreons. And we're tantalisingly close to unleashing the next goal to run online games every six months. For details and how to find out how to participate to the Patreon, please go to thegrognardfiles.com. New honorary members to the Armchair Adventurers are Chris McNeil, Andrew Cowie and Shannon Ferguson. Welcome, guys. New at the $3.5 level are Carl Clare and an upgrade from Rick Knott. Cheers. We look forward to sending you a hard copy of the zine when it comes out. We have two new patrons at the $5 level, so I'm going to award them with a magical gift from the Dungeon Master's Guide. I'm going to need a dice here. Okay, this time I've gone for... Table 99. Girdles, Hats and Helms. Nigel Holloway? Okay, 19. You've got a helm of underwater action. 
And once again, fun at bath times. Thanks, Nigel. Andrew Cousins, who's increased the number of coins in the beret this month. And you've got... 13. A helm of comprehending languages and reading magic, which will come in handy in Japan. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Finally, a shout-out to the Rollist podcast. Check out the link in the show notes. Callum has hosted a foodie special that includes a Walktopus contribution from me. So, that's the end of another bumper issue. Please, please get in touch with your comments or suggestions or bung a quick review on iTunes. I'm DirtTheDice at gmail.com Until next time, adios amigos.